Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Achtung, achtung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. And James, we're delighted to welcome a, a guest back. Great friend of the show. Great friend of the show, incredibly popular contributor to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. So who have we got, Jim? We've got Philippe Sands, and we're here to talk about Eugenio Pacelli, better known as Pope Pius XII, the wartime Pope, Hitler's Pope, variously ooh, known ooh. as... Ooh, well, come on. Ooh, naughty, naughty. I know, I know, <laughs> well, I know. I just couldn't resist it. Well, Pope Francis it. himself, he said the church is not afraid of history, didn't he, uh, a few years ago. So here is the history. Philippe, take us through. It's a sort of recent discovery, although it's something that's always been lurking, I expect. It is. It's a new development. Just to give a bit of context, there's always been a question of what Pope Pius XII, Eugene Pacelli, did and did not do Mm. Uh, in the course of the period uh, 1939 to 1945. He was he was silent about the horrors. He never addressed them. On the other hand, he also saved many Jews and other, uh, if you like, targets of Nazi opprobrium. And so the feeling is we don't quite know what he got up to. Against that background, there is the Vatican secret archive, which was not opened until 2019 in relation mm. to Pacelli's tenure. Interestingly, the way the archive works in uh, in the Vatican is that it's not like in Britain where, you know, you have a 30-year rule or a 50-year rule and then everything gets opened after 30 years or after 50 years. You keep the entire tenure of a papacy closed until it's opened. And then everything opens on one day. And that means researchers have to spend literally years going through hundreds of thousands of documents which are not really sort of curated and for the last four years interrupted by covid many researchers have been going through the material i mean the, the main researcher i've always looked at he's written a wonderful book called the pope at war is david kurtzer who won a, a pulitzer prize for an earlier book and he he is my trusted source yes not not john cornwell not John Cornwell, who wrote the book that you have already mentioned, which is titled Hitler's Pope, which is about Pius XII. And, and he was very, I mean, I knew John reasonably well, and he was obviously Catholic and was very, very angry about the whole thing. And I remember talking to him about it and, you know, it, it was absolutely deep rooted. And obviously that makes him, a, you know, he was absolutely the worst person to do this because objectivity didn't really come into it. Well, that may be right. I mean, he, he may, in the end, be shown to have been right in, in his conclusions or not. And that's what the big debate is about. Anyway, David Kurtzer has already spent a lot of time on this and more, and has already unearthed a lot of material to show that generally Pius XII had knowledge about what was going on. He's come across letters. But what has happened literally in the last few days is that a newly discovered letter has emerged um, yes. and has been brought to the public by a gentleman called Giovanni Coco. Actually, I don't know if that's how it's pronounced. It might be Coco, but it's spelt C-O-C-O. -C -O. He's and Italian anyway, isn't he? He's Italian. He is an archivist at the Vatican, mm -hmm. so an official fellow. And he has shared with Corriere della Sera a letter 
Which is a newspaper in, in Italy. Sorry, yes, an Ita- yes, I must should be clearer. It is an Italian newspaper, indeed, a very good Italian newspaper. Yeah, a long-standing one too. Long-standing, very serious, and they have a Sunday supplement. And in the Sunday supplement, and I think I've sent you a copy of it, they've actually published the full letter of the 14th of December, 1942. It's in German. Lieb, lieber Freund, it starts, doesn't it? It's, yeah, it's, yeah. my dear friend. Yeah. Lieber Freund, my dear friend, friend, an almost indecipherable signature. The signature is by a gentleman called Reverend Luther Koerning, and he was a sort of resistance priest, Catholic priest. He's Jesuit, isn't he? Yep, yep, yep. And and writing secretly to his good friend, Robert Lieber, Reverend Robert Lieber. Now, Robert Lieber is not just anybody. Robert Lieber is... Eugene Pacelli's uh, Pope Pius XII's right-hand man, his closest confidant. So as a number of people have suggested, the fact that the letter went to Lieber makes it 99% certain that uh, the Pope himself would either have seen the letter or been made aware of its contents. And there we get to the interesting thing, because what the letter states with absolute clarity is that Poles and Jews are being removed from a place called Ravaruska. And actually, I've been to Ravaruska. It's right by Lviv, Lemberg, uh, Leopolis, whatever you want to call it. It's close by. And 6,000 of them a day are being sent to, and he names the town Belzec, where they are being incinerated. And SS that, furnaces, isn't it? Yes, SS furnaces. And the letter then goes on to mention similar activities taking place at, he calls it Auschwitz, which is, of course, Auschwitz. And it's just impossible reading this letter to, once you've read it, to say, you know, we had no knowledge of what was going on. This, yeah, this is the thing, isn't it, Philippe? It's there in black and white. Um, mit den Juden in Poland macht man, man tatsächlich erst. It's 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 just right there. There's no way of looking at it, and there's and, no uh, way of running away from it. And so the yeah. question then, well, so the question, and of course we don't know, is you know if I was in a court of law cross-examining someone, which maybe one day I might be doing on this, you would be trying to prove to a court that the Pope personally had knowledge of this letter. We can't prove that. We don't know that he saw it, uh, nor do we know that the information was there. But we would approach it in a roundabout way um, by looking at the relationship between Lieber and the Pope, which was a very, very close relationship. And from that, invite a court to infer that inevitably the Pope must have, it must have been brought to his attention. A relationship analogous to what? So if it were Churchill and, and whom? I mean, if you see what I mean. I mean, I would say Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings. Yeah, there That's we are. That's what I would right. say. That's okay. very good. When they were still in the happy days. When they were still pals. Yeah, when they were pals. I mean, it's that kind of relationship. You have to imagine that, you know, Lieber was his eyes and ears and reporting yeah. back faithfully. So the next stage, I think, which is very important, is you're sort of then asking yourself the question, well, okay, let's assume he knew the information contained in this letter. Why did he not say anything about it? So the argument in his favour is that the... Jesuit priest who wrote to him, Kerning, expresses in the letter very clear concerns about the dangers posed to other resistors if he goes too public about this. And you can sort of see 
the logic of that argument. You don't mm. want to give anything away. I mean, we're seeing that right now, for example, in the Ukraine-Russia conflict is there is a lot of information that is privately held but is not being made public about what's going on in various parts of the offensive and who's doing what yeah. and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. And newspapers have that information and politicians have that information, but they're not making it available because they don't want to put people at risk. They don't want to cause a certain danger. So the argument for the Pope is that actually he was saving more lives in Germany amongst the resistors. I've got to say, it's not a very compelling argument. Well, no, it, it just, to me, that just sounds like arse covering. I mean, it, it doesn't doesn't seem to have any real substance, does it? Because if you're f- facing this kind of evil, you do something, anything you possibly can about it, you know. So, well, I mean, well it's- yes. And also you would expect, surely, in those archives to be other stuff, which is not necessarily public, which is, you know, out of the public eye of him trying to do something about it on the QT, you know, on, on, on sort of back channels. And presumably there's no evidence of that. So I was in when, when I was writing the rat line, I th- and I think I've mentioned this to you before, I did go to the Vatican mm. and I actually went inside the secret archive before it, it was opened up. It was in a most astonishing place. I wasn't allowed to take any photographs. Uh, I was allowed to write about the fact that I'd been to visit it. And it is huge. I mean, it is literally kilometers and kilometers of documents, many of which have never been released, some of which will never be released. The most interesting set of documents that I came about was a series of bound volumes going back, I think it was to the 14th century. And it was every single decision that every pope has ever given to dissolve a marriage. And that material is never going to be made publicly available because it contains intimate personal information. Wow. About the, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Isn't that something? Yeah. So that is that is never going to be made public. But, th- but this is apparently all being made public. And uh, I think more material will come out. I was there in, I think, 2018, 2019, a year before it all opened up. David Kurtzer warned me that it was going to take years and years and years for the full picture to emerge. Um, and I think he's right. Interestingly, actually, I did get a I get, did get a note from I wrote to David yesterday just to ask him what his thoughts were about this. And and he wrote back to me. He said it represented a significant piece of the historical picture. Although, as he said, as he goes references in his book, much was known from many credible sources. And then he goes on to say, and I thought this was completely fascinating. He said, as important to him about the announcement was that Coco, who he describes as an excellent archivist and serious scholar, had sitting with him in the interview with Corriere della Sera, uh, a bishop called Sergio Pagano uh, from the Vatican Archive, and The presence of Pagano was important, he writes, because it shows his words. There were important sectors in the Vatican resisting the whitewashing efforts of other sectors. So there's obviously a battle going on in the Vatican. But then he goes on. This made me very excited. I don't want your listeners to get overexcited about this, but I was very excited about it. He refers to the person who is leading the whitewashing charge and it is none other than Dr. X, I-C-K-X. Now, um, yeah. you may remember Dr. X is a character in the rat line because he 
was in charge of the Teutonic Institute's archive, which dealt with the Vechter Alois Hudal stuff, yes. which, which I thought had been filleted. And so there's, there's, I think, insight here into a big battle going on within the uh, Vatican archive community right now um, <laughs> huh. on these issues. Uh, given the archive so enormous, there could easily be other things lurking. Oh, yeah. Yeah, or yeah, not, yeah. you know, well, yeah, yeah. certainly, this, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's got to be. Yeah, no, no, there's going to be a lot. But again, I come back to what David Kurtz has said, which is it's going to be years and years. And what we're getting is the sort of drip, drip, drip uh, of material that is slowly coming out. Now, I, I just want to segue the conversation into what I think is was really going on here. Now, this is, I'm not a historian. I'm just a lawyer. This is my instinct. And I'd be interested to know what you think about this. I think what was really going on here was that the Pope was worried of two things. Firstly, the Germans might actually win the war, and so he needed to stay on the right side of them and not really piss them off by releasing all this information. But secondly, there must have been a part of him that was actually pretty sympathetic, like uh, Dr. X once said to me, of, you know, the Nazis played a hugely important role in balancing or standing against the rise of the Soviet bloc. And so one can imagine a scenario in which it's, it's, you don't make this stuff public when you are making common cause with the National Socialists in resisting the rise of communism, which is committed to undoing the Catholic Church. So we're back really to the rat line scenario. I think it's the latter rather than the former. Because I think by 1942, I think it's, you know, you can, you know, someone of, I mean, I know to a certain extent the Vatican exists in its own little bubble. But there are plenty of people around the Pope who can advise him on what's going on in the war. And and by December 1942, it's I mean it's starting to look pretty clear after what's happened at Stalingrad that the Germans have shot their bolt. So I don't think that's perhaps quite the the motive. I think it's the latter one. I think it's I think it's it's conserv- I think I think it's the the fear of communism and fear of communism takeover and breakdown of the of the Catholic Church. I mean that's what he's there to safeguard, isn't it? Is the Catholic Church and the Catholic bloc around the world and all the rest. Yeah, of but it. he's also effectively a hostage of the Nazis, isn't he? I mean it's like um Charles V holding the Pope hostage, isn't it? He's got the Nazis right on his doorstep. Yes, he may be able to read the runes. Plenty of people can't though, is the other thing in 1942. Plenty of people have not, including the you know the, the Nazi government. Uh, the penny hasn't dropped that they've um, overshot, and they also regard themselves as having plenty more work to do. Whichever way the war's going is the truth on their that war on the Jews. So, so I think probably seventy thirty that that, <laughs> that he's uh, worried about communism or Bolshevism. Because after all, after the war, he's allowed to sort of wholeheartedly embrace anti-communism. With the Cold War, he, he, he's able to to fill his boots on on that issue, isn't he? So, I mean, one point that you're making out that I think is important is that I mean, the, the Nazis were in occupation of Rome. Yeah, you know, exactly. At, at this time, and and let's not forget again. I mean, you know, life is always complicated. Things are never quite black and white. Yeah, he has received news that Italian Jews are being deported to Auschwitz and other places, and he acts to stop it, or at least it stops. Someone acted to make it stop. And in the end, I think, I mean, it's too many, but 1,100 Italian Jews were deported, most of whom never came back. But the deportation stopped, and the deportation stopped because, it seems pretty clear, of an intervention of the Vatican. So it, it would not be right to conclude that he was entirely on one side and just doing nothing in the face of these horrors. 
There are people who were personally saved by him. There's the entire Italian Jewish community, which was not decimated, as were other Jewish communities, in large part because of the intervention of the Vatican. So it's a very mixed and complicated record. Yeah. Well, but, but, that, but that maybe demonstrates the extent of his actual power and influence, is that he can affect things in Italy. His conclusion is he actually, you know, how many divisions does the Pope have? He can't influence events beyond his immediate doorstep, perhaps, is how he's seeing it as much as anything else. Well, I, I mean, that's that's complex. I mean, I think, you know, where I, 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 as I'm not an expert on this issue, but where I am, having spent years sort of, you know, ferreting around in the materials, is plainly he could and should have done more, and plainly he has to be held for account for not having done more in relation to, you know, victims of Nazism across Europe, in which the Catholic Church played an absolute central role. I mean, think of France, for example. What did the Vatican do in France in relation to the deportations? It, you know, again, I'm not an expert on it, but I don't think they did very much, if anything at all. Well, it's, it's a very mixed bag, is the truth of it. There were bishops who were very outspoken against it, and you know their tenorship as bishops didn't tend to last very long, and there were others who were completely complicit. I wonder whether it's also it's just worth just having a little look at Pacelli himself, because... You know, he's in the he's in the Pope Benedict mould of extremely ascetic and learned scholarly popes, isn't he? He's he's not a Pope Francis. He's um, you know, he's got his PhD by the age of whatever it is, mid twenties, and and that's on a particular aspect of papal law, if I'm if I remember rightly. And he's a very sort of quiet, austere man, isn't he? With a very strong relationship with Germany. He is all of those things, but I think it comes back to what we've already touched on. This is a time of great trauma in Europe, and his ultimate objective is to safeguard the long-term well-being of the Catholic Church. And I think, Alice, right, I I I think both of you are right. I think that is the dominant focus in relation to the context in which you understand a letter like this. Yeah. Can you call this a sort of smoking gun, though, Philippe? Because I suppose what people will circle back round to is, does does this mean that he's Hitler's Pope in the end? Because no, this is I, the... I, <laughs> no, I wouldn't... I, wouldn't it's not, it's not a, I think the smoking gun is the communication from the Pope to various people that, A, he's aware of the information, and B, he has decided not to act publicly upon it, setting out the reasons why. Now, I think... You know the, the Holy Grail document, if such a thing exists. Which I mean, for want of a better analogy, I mean, is going to be the memo in which Pius the Twelfth instructs you know his subalterns to uh, act in a particular way. That presumably exists. That he must have communicated to others what he intended to do about this information or this issue, he may have decided, and of course this is what happens in modern life, is not to reduce it into writing, but simply to communicate it orally, in which case we will never know with absolute certitude what his intentions or decisions were, and the smoking gun will never emerge. But, you know, all three of us are incredibly used to dealing with situations where there are no smoking guns precisely because, as we know in our own lives, each of the three of us, I'm sure in different ways, there are certain things you never put into writing. 
because <laughs> be, because you don't want a paper trail. You don't want someone in eighty three years time to say, "Oh, that Sands figure did that because of this reason." Or you know, you don't. Well, you don't want your WhatsApps leaked. Is the modern equivalent, isn't it? But Pope Pius the Twelfth himself, you know, because he's this, you know, he's not verbose. He's not. You know, he's not a man who has his heart on his sleeve by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, you can see a lot of this. I sort of suspect a, a lot of it is internalised and not spoken about. And 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 it's I don't know my my my, my sense of him and sense of the wartime papacy is there's lots of people not quite saying anything quite. You know, it's all kind of implied and or or not implied or internalized and and you know as you say you know without the without the writing I'd, I'd be really surprised if there is a is a written paper trail of him being specific on that. i'd be surprised also but i'd be equally surprised if they didn't talk about things i think the question is how you communicate things i mean you know in my world as a lawyer for example when you're doing a case in court there are lots of spoken words thousands of things are said but there is no way to capture that moment if you're making an argument and the judge looks at you and very gently raises an eyebrow and without anything actually being communicated in a verbal form, you know exactly um, <laughs> what is being said. I mean, my most famous example of that was we had, a, I mean, the, really, the most famous judge in Britain for many years was a guy called Tom Bingham, Lord Bingham, an absolutely wonderful, wonderful judge. And if you were arguing cases in front of him, there'd come a moment, and he was famous for this, where he would look at you or whoever was acting as counsel, and he would go, mm-hmm. And you <laughs> understood that when he said, mm-hmm, he didn't want to hear any more about that point. It's basically saying, please move on to your next point. And, and from that, you could work out that effectively a decision was taken. And I am sure Pius Twelfth would have used his eyebrows, would have snorted, would have sighed, would yeah. have indicated. Clicked his fingers even. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, we all do this. We all do this in yeah. our personal lives. We do it in our professional lives. We find ways of communicating without actually, I, mean, I mean, the British are actually, you know, someone says to me in court, well, Mr. Sands, that's, that's a very interesting argument. <laughs> you, you know that the judge is basically saying it's a crap argument. Move on to your next argument. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I remember the I remember the deputy head of my school. I I, I had a, a suit on that I wasn't strictly speaking allowed to wear because it had very, very, very thin pinstripes in it. And he came up to me and he said, "I like your suit." <laughs> basically what that meant was get it off immediately and put on another one <laughs> and you never wore it again no i think this is so this is a real challenge for historians or people interested in history how do you capture how do you interpret how do you deal with the ways we have of communicating that are not verbalized but the, the reciprocal bearing of this philip is the people who resort to the fact that things aren't written down to prove that people didn't know this is the holocaust denier argument isn't it is well there's no the, we can't find where hitler said he wanted to do this there's no written order therefore he didn't know absolutely which after all is the speaks to the sort of dishonesty of that approach doesn't it um no i mean uh, it's completely fascinating i mean J james and i for many years have been talking about this character who was a uh, a colleague of of Otto Wächter's, uh, a man called Walter Rauf, uh, who was the SS officer responsible for the mobile 
sort of gas fans that went around Europe in 41 and early 42. He, he ended up in Chile. He's the subject of my next book. And also nicking all the gold from Gerber. Well, it is said. It is said. So, so he moves to Chile, and one of the big, you know, unknowns is what exactly did he get up to in Chile during the Pinochet era? Now, Pinochet and his folks learned from the Nazi experience, and they systematically destroyed all of the documents held by the. It's called the DINA, the Dirección de Inteligencia Nacional, the, the secret intelligence service, who did the torturing, who did the disappearing. And so all of the cases in Chile on crimes against humanity in that period, torture and other things, they're all based on witness testimony. And so in my research on Ralph, I don't have hard documents. What I've been doing, and it takes time, is going around and talking to people who were present and asking them for their firsthand eyewitness accounts of what they saw, what they heard, what was said. And again, that raises issues of credibility and the probative value of that kind um, of, of information. And nothing beats, coming back to this letter, a document in black and white because it's there, as you said right at the beginning, there's no getting away from that sentence which basically says they're killing 6,000 Poles and Jews every day, mm. incinerating them in a place called Belzege. Mm. Yeah, yeah. We need to take a quick break right now. We'll see you in a moment. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. But it also speaks to the wider issues of how much the outside world knew of what was going on and when they knew it. Well, yes. 
I mean, I think that's pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, pe- people knew. I mean, people people in the outside world, including people who lived around, you know, crematoria, they knew from the smell. Yes, um, but it's how much did the Western Allies know? How much did, you know, did Churchill know in 1942, all this kind of stuff? I think they knew. I think they knew. Oh, they knew from Ultra and they knew from bugging people as well, the, the, they knew, Kendrick's they efforts. Knew. They, knew, they knew this stuff perfectly well. Um, but, you know, the, the Allied argument is always, well, the way to end it is to, is to defeat Germany. And the British government, they're worried that if they appear to be being too sympathetic to, the, to Jews in Europe, that they'll spark anti-Semitism in the British population. And it'll, it'll trigger the idea that the war is being has been set in motion by Jews, for Jews, and all that mad stuff. There's all those complications too. After all, the, the Allies, they, they may be the good guys in this, but again, as yeah. you said, as we've touched on, it's all very complicated and complex yeah. and, and of a time where people view this stuff quite differently. I think what you're saying, Alan, I completely agree with this, is that we know from life that every act and everything you say is liable to have consequences that are unintended. And you can't ever predict precisely what the consequence of an intervention is going to be. I mean, who would have who would have predicted that all these indictments of Donald Trump would strengthen him and that he would turn them around and use them in order to strengthen his campaign? I have to say, all of this is causing me, and it may be you want to go back and find someone who can talk about this. I'm fascinated about this is the way in which Adolf Hitler used the cases in the German courts in 1929, in 1931, 1932, using Hans Frank as his lawyer to turn around his own prospects by creating a community. I'm really interested in that analogy. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? And how vulnerable the courts the courts were to him using them as a pulpit. Basically. Hugely, I mean, huge, hugely valuable. But, but that's, that's sort of what's happening now, isn't it? It's, it's, it's absolutely terrifying. It, it, exactly. And the key character, there's a famous photo, you'll find it very easily, of Hans Frank standing on the steps of a courthouse with Adolf Hitler behind him. I think it's about 1929, 1930. And they're both beaming because they know that even though they've lost the case, it's gonna. It, they've won. They've won. Yeah. And yeah. that is, for me, completely fascinating. Nothing is ever what it seems. That's what's amazing. Well, the, gosh, that's a very interesting point. Because after all, the, after the beer hall putsch, the courts fail to put him down properly, don't take him seriously. The judge is essentially sympathetic, a nationalist. You know, he's, he's, he's sent to an, essentially an open prison where he can receive visitors and carry on Write carry books. on uh, writing books and essentially holding court and and yet with his reputation sort of enhanced politi- amongst his political supporters and potential political supporters it is interesting isn't it his use throughout his career his use of the courts and his maneuvering through the courts and that german population's relationship with the idea of the law because after all you've street fighting and people enforcing their idea of of what they want from a state on the streets, and that's on both sides, left and right. I think that's that is an absolutely fascinating set of circumstances. And I've had a little look. I haven't found it. I'm looking for that book or that sort of article or that law review article where someone has analysed the way in which Hitler and the Nazis used the courts before they came to power to create, um, you know, a narrative that would help them achieve their political objectives. Because I think that's what's going on right now 
in the United States. Yes, and it's exactly the same theme, which which is basically there is a sort of bigger, deeper state which is corrupt, and and you know, and, and they're just trying to shut us down. Yeah, and, and and you need to, you, you the people of Germany yeah. need to stand up against this because otherwise, you know, these dark forces which are infected by Bolshevism and Judaism are going to ruin you and us and the nation, and will be, you know, will fall into quagmire. And 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 it is me, Hitler, and the National Socialists which are exposing this corruption. And alerting you to it, and we have to save them to save it together. And, and that is e- exactly what Trump is saying in America. But not just Trump, because of course the the central thesis there is that actually the judges and the lawyers are part of that elite who are basically holding ordinary folk down. And that's why we got. Do you remember that incredible headline um, in various newspapers, the Mail, the Telegraph, uh, the Express, "Enemies of the People." And the outing, if you like, of various judges who were seen to be not standing up for the interests of the British people. And that, I think, was what such a concern for me and so many lawyers and judges, who of course are part of the establishment, nevertheless, a disrespect of law marks the first step in taking down the system. I mean, part of the complication in the US is that the law is explicitly political isn't it because you vote for your district attorneys and so on don't you so and and politicians appoint judges and stuff so there's, there's that added complication there as well isn't there that that um trump can say well that's a democrat judge who's who's coming for me although often enough it's not but, it's people he's appointed uh, which, which which complicates things further i mean it, it's the dilemma though isn't it because should the courts just ignore everything because they're worried because they don't want to amplify trump's influence but so what do you what on earth do you do judges are human and judges react you know the law is not something that is mechanically applied you know you've got the people who make the arguments then you've got the judges who make the decisions judges are human For example, I don't do cases before the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, but lots of my colleagues who do say they have detected a change since those judgments on Brexit as the judges of the highest court have effectively exercised, shall we say, greater restraint in interfering with the executive's exercise of its powers. And I think that is a very complex relationship. I'm not necessarily being critical of that tendency, a, a, a judge has to, if you like, put their finger in the air and see which way the wind is blowing until a line is crossed. And I think that's an area for fertile exploration. I mean, uh, my, my one experience of, uh, I was involved in this thing called the Twitter joke trial, uh, Philippe, many years ago, a fellow called Paul Chambers had tweeted a joke that the then director of public prosecutions, Keir Starmer, Ooh. took as a, took as a ther- terror threat. And um, it was a, it was obviously a joke. And he ended up, we ended up in the Court of Appeal. We got all the way to the top with Lord Justice Judge. Igor. Yeah, a, a quite extraordinary experience. And we were advised, basically, what they don't want to have to do is use Article 10 because it'll look really terrible in the papers. And you're thinking, what? Yeah, 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 yeah. What, yeah, yeah, yeah. what, what are you talking about? And they came up with a, a way of getting uh, this fellow Paul Chambers out of trouble, clearing, you know, clearing him without using Article 10, because they were, you could tell that they were thinking, well, if we resort to Article 10, it'll look, there's chunks of the newspapers that really won't like that. And we'll, and this is before, you know, enemies of the people and all that stuff after the referendum. It wasn't that I was surprised by this, but I was sort of <laughs> a big penny dropped for me that, that, as you say, it isn't a, it isn't a machine justice. It isn't, 
it isn't a sort of a data in decision out engine that you could you turn the handle and you get your justice out the other end of it it's it's people and it's judges worried about being bollocked by newspapers and as much as anything else yeah and that's happened since time immemorial i mean the people who really know about the german judges and the german courts in the 20s in the 30s in the 40s say exactly the same thing and that theme of the relationship between politics and the law i think is is a completely fascinating subject and it's not black and white it's not simple i mean it's really complex i mean the other the other thing i think is is interesting about hitler and, and comparing him with trump is is that is a sort of manipulating of 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 media to advantage i mean you know hitler's famously the first politician to use use air transport to get around and do more canvassing but he also holds these rallies i mean before he's holding rallies in nuremberg he's holding rallies in beer halls you know so it's not you know and he's using media in a different way to anyone who's come before him in the way that trump is and uh, in a way that trump has been using social media in a way that's been different to to any other politician and i think one can over egg the similarities but there are stylistic similarities which are pretty chilling no i mean i think history teaches us a lot you folks know this better than anyone but i mean the as we as we get even older you do realise that nothing is new. Everything has sort of happened before in slightly different ways. Yeah. And you go back to previous times and realise it's all been done before. But we don't learn. We don't really learn from it, do we? That's really quite fascinating. Well, a lot of it comes down to it wouldn't happen here, doesn't it? That's a, a, a great human reflex. Is well, it would. It couldn't happen here. That thing that happened there couldn't happen here. I think it's very often the. Not us. We're not us. We're sensible. You know, we're reasonable people. You say that. I'm very fascinated by what's going on right now with this inquiry in relation to Jersey and, um, or is it Guernsey? And, you know, the one part of the United Kingdom that was occupied. And it does seem that there's colorable evidence of collaborations, of people being killed in large numbers, of mass graves. But of course, we never know anything about it. And so the question that you ask, I don't know what the answer is, is, has there effectively been a silence? Because we don't want to suggest that actually we are just like anyone else. And if we had been occupied, we would have been, you know, as the French were or as the Dutch were or as some other country was. We, we have no idea. It's a counterfactual. We don't know. It's a speculation. But I'm very fascinated by that inquiry. Indeed. It's amazing how often the Second World War appears in the newspapers. It really is extraordinary. <laughs> it comes up time and time again because someone's Thank found God a for that. Or, what, we, what would we talk about, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> it makes us feel good about ourselves. That's isn't that well, the reality? That's, that's one of its. Fu- that, I think that's very much one of its functions. Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe. Yeah, maybe. Although, as we de- delve ever, ever, ever deeper, sort of, I don't know how you know. Having just done Italy and the vast amounts of destruction caused on the Italians at the hands of the Allies, I, I'm not sure how good I do feel about it. To be well, honest. you feel yes, you, uh, whichever way you end up feeling grubby. Um, Philippe, what else are you writing about? I, I, I'm loath to use the expression. What else have you got in the pipeline? Um, because th- that's a terrible thing to ask anyone. What am I allowed to say? Well, you can say anything you like. You're doing Walter Ralph. Walter Ralph to come. Yeah, Walter Ralph and Augusto Pinochet will come out at some point in 2025. The rat line, you'll be fascinated to know, has been bought for an eight-part TV series. Oh, what's not to like about that? I know, but here's here's a very interesting issue. So it's been bought by a wonderful German production company. And 
I and the German producer are absolutely insistent that it ought to be in the original languages that people speak in. So, you know, German, Italian, and English. So Thomas Lucid obviously speaks in English, but Otto Wächter didn't speak a word of English. And so he's got to speak in German, and then the Italians have got to speak in Italian, blah, blah, blah. But, of course, some of the producers say, no, 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 if it's in the original languages, you know, one-tenth the number of people will be interested. And so you've got to put it all in English. No, that's just, did you know, that is just absolute nonsense. I agree. Absolute nonsense of the highest order. That that is just absolute bollocks. You have to have them speaking German, and you have to have them speaking, and you just, that's that's ridiculous. Well, the recent Das Boot, they did it in all the right languages, and it it was fantastic for it. And clearly, Volker Brook has to play Otto von Vector. <laughs> well, well, here's an interesting thing. As we begin, as the producers begin to address actors and actresses, there is a younger community of German and Austrian actors who do not wish to play Nazis. And that was that came out of the blue for me. I must say, I, I had not expected that to occur. So that's that's all underway. I'm doing very How exciting. Have you, have you got? I mean, is it is it so much a done deal that it's actually going to happen, or is it? Is no, it, you know, it, you know that world. I mean, there is yeah. money for pre-production and yeah, yeah, yeah. And the first yeah. series, that I think it's called a pilot. I mean, I've never done one of these yeah. before. The pilot is being written, so that's in the pipeline. Now, the other thing is, I don't know. Am I allowed to talk about what I'm about to say? Is that yes, I might possibly be starting a podcast series quite soon. Oh, that's, yes. a mugs, that's a mugs game. Really? <laughs> What's your advice? Don't do not do it. Don't well, do you're it. the right person to do it with. <laughs> you, you end up in hotel rooms in Manchester talking, you know. <laughs> anyway, no, I, I think that sounds, that sounds fascinating. What about the law or about justice? Because they're not the same thing. Like hypothetically, it could be called the rest is justice, for example. Oh. <laughs> um, and and yes, I found my uh, two excellent partners, uh, both of whom are very well known to me, and we're just about ready to roll with doing some you know test runs and seeing how it goes. And lo and behold, what happens? I'm not going to name the person, but one of them just gets brought in to be involved in the Trump indictment. Um, in the federal Amazing. prosecutions in the United States. So Amazing. we've lost that person for a year, but I remain with one partner. I, I mean, I thought two partners was probably going to be better. So I think I think the idea is if we do it, well, I think we, well, we are going to do it, and we're going to start pretty soon. Well, Philippe, that's, that, that's fantastic and, and um, br- brilliant that we've had a conversation that was um, about a new revelation about Pope Pius XII and ended up on such a uh, so many rabbit holes and wide-ranging stuff, which is very much in the tradition of We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Um, uh, we like rabbit holes and we like going off-piste. Um, and all I can say is um, I'm sure you'll do exactly the same with the rest is justice, and I don't think you can go too far wrong. We will. And do um, I did set the, I'm just holding the letter in front of me. It is worth... I don't know if you put it up on your website. Just we'll we'll post it with the with this episode. I think we'll put it up with this episode because it is worth seeing. Nothing beats something in black and white. Nothing, mm. nothing. Um, yep. Although it's also got lots of little scribbles on it, things have highlighted in yellow and circled, and you just wonder, well, who put that on? And you know, well, where does that it, it's from? interesting though, isn't it? Because although it's in black and white, it throws up its own set of um, you know grey. It does. Oh, oh, that's that's profound. Well, it's, well, I wouldn't. Maybe, maybe it belongs on a mug. <laughs> um, thank you so much for talking to us, Philly. Very um, good. Be well, and you, as ever. Yeah. Great to talk to you, as always. Cheerio. Bye bye. Bye bye.